Well, uh, you know, a family chat, a, a church business meeting is kind of an opportunity to look ahead. What, what are some good things that are coming? What, what's the hope that, has, that God has for us as a church family? And then also look back. What happened? Where have we come from? The highs and the lows, the good and the bad. And I hope you're doing that in your own personal life as well, that you take time for reflection, that you don't just go through every day without thinking, where have I come from and where am I going? You know, what, what brought me to this place and what trajectory am I on in my life? And if you take time to do that, uh, inevitably there will be elements of both rejoicing and pain and sorrow as you look at your own past failures and weaknesses and the hurt that you carry forward to this day, also the, cel- the things to celebrate from the past, the good things that have happened. But then hopefully you can look forward with hope as well to see that God is at work within your life. And so if you are facing those questions, what is my greatest longing today? Where am I headed? What is my deepest pain? What's my greatest regret? Then you'll be able to identify with a woman we're going to meet today in John chapter 4. These are the two issues that Jesus addresses in her life. Let's read together now in John chapter 4 verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. You know, there's this building tension between Jesus and the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees. And so there's word getting out, as we read at the end of John chapter 3 last week, uh, there was a little bit of uh, competition in the minds of John's disciples. Hey, uh, John the Baptist, the guy that you came announcing, is now having more people baptized than you are. And John said, that's not a problem. That was the whole point. He must increase, I must decrease. We got a good picture of his heart in, in his words there at the end of John 3. But now the, the word is, is eking out to the, the, the Pharisees, these powerful Jewish religious leaders, and Jesus says it's time to exit the scene. It's not time yet to get into the persecution and the whole path and journey to the cross. There's more ministry to happen. There's more proclamation to go forth And so he leaves that region, the the Judean countryside, and now makes his way toward Galilee. And along the way in verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. We'll we'll touch on what Samaria is a little bit later because John makes it explicit that there's there's a particular issue about this region of Samaria. So he had to pass through Samaria and he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. A lot of Old Testament history here. Uh, The history of God's people here in the promised land and tying into some of those patriarchs, the, the, uh, the saints that have gone before. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. A couple of just interesting observations there. Number one, Jesus is tired. He's wearied and he he goes and sits down beside this well. Number two, Jesus is thirsty. These are the kinds of verses that back in the first century when there were debates 
among Christians about who Jesus is, verses like this trip some people up. You know, a lot of people wanted to elevate the divinity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus is God. That if Jesus is not God, then he's just another dude that suffered, just like all of us suffer. Maybe not to the point of death, sacrificial death, but we, we know stories today of people, men and women, who die sacrificially for others. If Jesus isn't God, what's the big deal? And so there were people in the first century who wanted to elevate the divinity of Jesus. But then you've got verses like this that say Jesus got tired. Jesus needed a drink on the cross. Jesus said, I thirst. In the other Gospels, we learn that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, got bigger, and in favor with both God and man. And those are very human attributes of Jesus, characteristics of Jesus, that there is this man quality of who Jesus is. And so this led to debates in the first century. Well, is Jesus fully God or is he just fully man? You know, maybe he's fully man because there's only one God. We want to make sure there's only one God. We want to make sure that we're monotheists. But maybe God created Jesus as his chosen means of salvation. Okay? And if you, if you listen carefully to some teachings going on, even in our day, you'll hear this from a group of people that go around and ring doorbells and knock on doors. They believe that about Jesus, that Jesus is not fully God. He's just a man that God chose. But the best way of, of handling all of these passages, this is our source of truth, right? So if you've got a question about who Jesus is, Go to the handbook where you can find truth. And after you investigate that question, you'll find that Jesus is both. It's not an either or, it's a both and. He is fully God and he's fully man. And this is one of those paradoxes and mysteries and tensions of the faith, right? So here we're hearing some very human characteristics and attributes of who Jesus is. He's weary and he's thirsty And this is the humanity of Jesus on display. The beauty of of verses like this is that we know that he became like one of us. He became one of us in order that we may learn how to become like him. That's the beauty of looking at the humanity of Jesus. And so it's a, you know, maybe today we could we could look at this story. Yeah, Jesus is he's tired, he's thirsty, he's sitting by a well by himself. A lady comes out to draw water and he starts up a conversation with her and asks for a drink. Seems perfectly natural. But in the first century, this was unusual. In fact, the woman herself is a bit alarmed by this. That there's a man sitting out here by the well, by himself, talking to me. Uh, I'm out here by myself. This isn't right. Jesus' disciples are not there. It's not proper. And furthermore, there's a cultural problem in this exchange. It's not just a single man and a single woman out at a well alone, but there's this problem of two different ethnicities that are coming together at the well. And so she says to him in verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And here the, the, the 
explanation by the author of John's Gospel. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. There's some major racial tension between these two groups of people. And here's Jesus just bulldozing right through all of that awkwardness. I don't care that you're a woman out here at the well alone and I'm a guy out here by myself. I don't care that you're a Samaritan and I'm a Jew. Can I have a drink? I have a need. Will you bless me in this way to bring refreshing and then I can graciously receive what you offer to meet this need that I have? Well, why is there this tension? Why why do Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? There's some history there. Okay, so if you think through Israel's history, go, you know, go back and read your Old Testament and walk through some of those stories. We just came through Easter. Uh, Easter is the celebration of Jesus' resurrection, obviously, but a lot of what happens in Easter week goes back and echoes earlier into Israel's history when they were delivered, God's people delivered from slavery in Egypt. And there was that Passover lamb whose blood was painted on the, on the doorposts of the house. Jesus is now fulfilling that story and bringing it to a whole new level. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world, not just whoever's in that one room in Egypt. But then after Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, there's a a journey to the promised land that God said, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. He had said this to Abraham generations prior. Now it's fulfilled in the the generation that Moses leads out into the wilderness. It takes them 40 years of wandering. Joshua and Caleb end up being the ones who lead them into the promised land. But there's joy and there's celebration. Read the uh, the book of Joshua as the land is divided out and God's blessing is poured out. So now the land of Israel, 12 tribes given this land, and then we, we enter into another dark part of their history as there's varying kings and judges that come in, times of obeying all the laws, commands, and decrees of the Lord, other times of living in disobedience, prostituting themselves to serve false gods. And then God's judgment comes in once again to discipline his children, Israel, and bring them to himself. His, his grand plan is always redemption. And he will achieve that. He will bring glory to himself. When he judges his people, he uses foreign nations. And so the northern tribes of Israel in 722 B.C. are conquered by the foreign land of Assyria, dragged off into captivity. Later, in 586 B.C., the southern tribes of Judah are carried off to Babylon in captivity. The reason that this is all relevant is because Samaria is there in the northern region. So it's the region that was conquered by Assyria, and Assyria handles their prisoners of war differently than Babylon does. Babylon, if you are captured by Babylon, you get to all hang out together now in a different place in the Babylonian Empire But you can still carry out your practices, eat your food, worship your God together in community with other people from your race. Assyria decided to to do a different thing in their conquest. They were afraid that having little enclaves of Israelites living somewhere else in the Assyrian Empire could result in you deciding that instead of just eating food together and celebrating your holidays together and worshiping your God together, you might decide to start making some weapons together and start a revolt. And so their solution was to mix it up. Take a few of you, 
from that conquered land of Assyria, uh, of, of Israel, and mix you up with uh, you know, a group of other mixed race, mixed background people, and then stick you somewhere in the Assyrian Empire where you would have major obstacles to ever coming up with an effective strategy to lead a revolt because you've got linguistic barriers, cultural barriers, difference of background. And so in this land of Samaria, this northern part of what used to be Israel, you now have mixed race people. You've got some of the, the native Israelites who lived there prior to the conquest, others that were dragged off into captivity and returned there. And so they brought the teachings of the Old Testament. They brought knowledge of the one creator God. But then you've got other religions, cultures, backgrounds all mixed up together in that land of Samaria. So when the southern tribes of Judah return from captivity in Babylon, Persia conquers them, allows them to return, they see themselves as the pure Jews who are not tainted by all these foreign ideas and foreign people and, and possibly false gods. And that's why they look with disdain on the Samaritans. They see them as polluted, corrupted, not pure. And this woman is, is amazed that Jesus, a Jew, is, first of all, even associating with her, but secondly, asking her for something. That he's going to take a cup from her hand and drink from it and be refreshed. And Jesus responds to that surprise that she has by saying in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. There's some wisdom in what Jesus is doing here that I, I, I take and I, I hope you can grab a hold of as well. I think a lot of times as Christians we go out with all the answers. We, give with, we come with a lot to give, a lot to offer. But maybe we're hesitant and reluctant to receive from our neighbors. Maybe there's a reason why we think, you know, actually you have nothing to offer me. I, I bring all the answers. I bring all the solutions. I know that Jesus is the way. I come with a message to communicate to you. I come with a gift that you need to receive. The problem is that people are often closed off to that approach. But Jesus comes and he tenderizes her heart by asking her for something. Saying, would you give me a drink? Is there anything that that non-Christian neighbor has to offer that you could graciously receive? I bet there is. And God will give you the wisdom and the creativity to receive that with, with graciousness. Not to say, no, I'm, I'm fine. I've got this all handled. I don't need any help. But to, to receive graciously, even to ask. And then to create a, a relationship where there is mutual giving and receiving. And that person who's been able to bless you and see the joy and the refreshing that's come to you as you've graciously received what they offer now has a heart that's open to receiving a gift that will last not just for this life, but for the life to come. And Jesus says, you know, so far, uh, Samaritan woman, you've misunderstood who I am. And now I'm going to tell you about something else that you're ultimately going to misunderstand, this living water. There's a double meaning. Uh, living water would be a way of talking about a stream. It's water that's moving and flowing. In a dry region of the world, this would be different from a stagnant pool. 
even from the kind of water that's at the bottom of a well. But there's also metaphorical meaning that draws from Israel's past in that phrase, living water. You can go back and study some Old Testament passages yourself. I'll give you two, but there's a lot more than this. Jeremiah chapter 2. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God himself is the source of living water. Real life and and the, the complaint there at the time of Jeremiah was that his people had abandoned that living water, that source of all life. And instead they were happy with stinky, stagnant water from cisterns that they had made with their own hands. So there's worship of false gods. There's idolatry is at the opposite end of that living water offer that God brings. Another chapter would be Zechariah chapter 14. And this is looking at the, the end of time, the day of the Lord, which is what Jesus is bringing in here in John, John's gospel. Zechariah 14, on that day, living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. There's a day coming when the king will be seen. And that will be a day of blessing and refreshing, living water that will flow east and west. And so Jesus is tantalizing her with this offer of something that will fulfill her deepest longing. You know, this is a very practical need. This isn't just a, yeah, someday I'd really like to sort of longing. This is a daily journey to a place to find refreshment that that you need, liquid, hydration that's needed every day. And Jesus meets her at that place and says, I'm going to give you something that will quench your thirst forever. And the woman, hearing him alluding to some heavenly realities, uh, once again shows her misunderstanding of who Jesus is and what he's offering. She said to him in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. You know, she reminds me of Nicodemus, a chapter earlier as Jesus is talking to him about the need for new birth. You need to be born again, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus says, can an old man enter his mother's womb again? You know, responding with earthly thinking to some heavenly wisdom that Jesus is offering. And we're seeing the same thing here with this woman, this Samaritan woman at the well. And Jesus explains it in this way. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This thing's going to go viral, woman at the well, Samaria. You're going to be so refreshed that that living water is going to start flowing through you and it will last forever. Water to quench your deepest longing. And she responds to that offer. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, 
Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. That's a beautiful response. Wouldn't you love it if someone that you offered the gospel to responded in that way? Give me some of that. I want that eternal life that you're talking about. And it seems promising, and yet Jesus doesn't, you know, uh, pray the sinner's prayer, have an altar call at this moment. He digs a little bit deeper, and he goes not just to that point of longing that she has, but he gets into really her area of deepest hurt, her greatest need, her darkest secret. And, and there's some wisdom in this approach to presenting the gospel, the truth, that there is a king, that he has a plan. Because, you know, when, when someone begins with that, give it to me, they may not have yet dealt with that dark part of their heart that is in need of redemption. You know, the, the gospel response that begins with, give me, may not last. It may not endure the hardship and the struggles that come in this journey of faith as we follow after our Lord. There's a, a, a root sin problem that's common in our culture, probably common to every person who's ever lived. It's self-centeredness, self-focus, self-love, my needs, my wants, my goals, my desires. And in contrast to all that, Jesus said, if you would come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Now, now that, that idea, that picture that Jesus lays out, there's no way to align that with our default setting of self-love, desires, my plans, my goals, my dreams, making myself the God of my life with a lowercase g. And so Jesus digs a little bit deeper. He doesn't respond to that initial hand raised during the altar call of give me some of that living water. He said, hold on. I want to make sure you really understand what, what I'm talking about. And now he makes it personal, drives it home for her, and he says this. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Man, that, that seems kind of mean, doesn't it? You know, that Jesus would go there. G Jesus, you didn't seriously go there. I mean, this woman, had, her heart was tender. Her heart was soft. She said, I want some of that living water. And you had to take it there? Make it that personal, that painful, that real? Yeah, he did. He brought it home for her. He, he really wants her to taste this living water. He really wants her to experience eternal life. And so he goes to that place of her deepest pain. Now, don't read this as if she's a 21st century woman here in Aurora, okay? This would be a very different story if we're talking a lady at Southlands. Yeah, yeah, ma'am, yeah, you're right. Um, the guy you're shacking up with, you're not even married to, and he's, your, he's number six. You know, you've had five husbands, and now you keep trading him in for younger models or, or wealthier models or guys with better physique, this, there, there are no first century manizers. Let me just dispel that myth in your mind. Okay, this is not how it works in the first century. Jesus is not coming to her and speaking to her of her infidelity, 
You know, her sexual uh, promiscuity, her exploits. Women just didn't have that opportunity in the first century. There, there were other ways of sinning, but that was not a way that a woman could choose in the first century. Uh, a, woman, a woman was entirely dependent upon the man who was caring for her as a husband, or in this case, not as a husband. And so this woman had gone through a series of either being divorced by a husband who left her or having a husband die. So she's either been widowed or divorced, not by her own choice, five times. And now finally she's dependent upon a man who won't even marry her. But he's providing for her in some way, providing some safety or or the food that she needs. So Jesus is not coming in and addressing her area of greatest sin. He's addressing her area of greatest pain. This is a desperate woman in a desperate place and Jesus goes there in his gospel presentation. He wants her to, when she grabs a hold of that hope and that eternal life that he's offering, to really understand and appreciate the depth of what he's offering. It's not just, I'll give you what you want, but it goes deeper than that. I'll give you what you most need radical transformation at a heart level. And so here's how she responds. He puts his finger exactly on her heart. This is who you are. This is where you've come from. This is, who, this is your greatest need today. And she says, Sir, I, perce- I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, she's not just changing the subject here. This is getting really personal. Let me bring it to a theoretical, theological conversation here. I don't think that's what she's doing. She's she's bringing up the, the very point of theological difference between Samaritans and Jews. You may experience this as well as you proclaim good news right here in our in our community. That when it really comes down to it and it gets personal and people are starting to understand who Jesus is and what he's offering and how that connects to my greatest hurt, my deepest longing, my place of need, they're probably going to need you to answer those really big theological questions that divide their belief system from what we are presenting in a gospel message, right? So if you've got a, a Jehovah's Witness that you're sharing the gospel with, they are very likely to ask you questions about the divinity and humanity of Jesus. How can you believe that Jesus is both fully God and fully man? If you're talking to a Mormon, they may very well ask you questions about what is God's plan for North America? What do you do with the Book of Mormon? If you are sharing the gospel with a Muslim, They may very well ask you, how can it be? Explain to me the Trinity. Don't you believe in three gods, not one? And they'll ask you those real humzinger questions that you may need to phone a friend to answer. Right? And that's okay. You know, Jesus didn't need to phone a friend. He, He knew the answer, and that's who you can tap into as well. And your brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's fine as you're presenting the gospel to someone who asks you a question like this, it's great to say that is a really good question. Uh, You know, can we, let me me do some looking into that. 
Can we meet again next week? That's, that's an awesome question. I don't have the answer for you today. It's okay to have humility in your presentation of the gospel message. But there's also an encouragement in 1 Peter chapter 3 that says, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And if you can capture all of that in your presentation of the gospel, then people are likely to respond as this Samaritan woman does as Jesus responds to that question. Here's what he says. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. He's addressing her theological question, but he's also making it personal for her. Now, you know, today, the, 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 let me give you two examples of a way that you could kind of go for the throat in your presentation of the gospel. Okay, the, the, the extremely Arminian way would be to make it all about your choice and your decision. Okay? To, you know, today, you need to decide, make a decision to follow Jesus. You, you, know, you need to confess your sins, leave your past behind, surrender to him, give your life over to him. Make a decision to go to him. An extremely Calvinist presentation of the gospel would em- emphasize God's sovereign work in drawing you to himself. You know, God predestined you, he elected you, he chose you, he set you apart, he draws you to himself. I think you can hold both together and I think Jesus does right here. He's both emphasizing the fact that God is seeking God is the one who's pursuing. God's the one who's coming after you. God has a plan for your life. But he's also calling this woman to a place of action and decision and response. And I think anytime you could present the gospel in a way that holds those two together, it's a stronger, more complete view of what's required. To say, you know what, God has you here for a reason today. It's not by accident that you walked into church this Sunday morning. Maybe you drove by the sign and today was the day you said, let's go check it out. Well, there's a plan that God has. He's building his kingdom for his glory and he's chosen you to be redeemed, to taste that living water, to be refreshed, to have your sins forgiven, to be cleansed, to be set on a new path that's not destruction but it's hope and it's life. And he's got a mission for you, and it's going to bring joy. You're going to get a chance to be a part of the harvest that we'll read about in just a few verses. So respond. Yield to him. Surrender. Receive what he gives and be changed. And the woman says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You know, Jesus obscures himself from some of the other important religious people around Jerusalem 
But he, he makes himself known to this Samaritan woman. Yeah, yeah the, the king you've been waiting for, you're talking to him. You've just met him today. And at that moment, the disciples come back. And they're baffled by this seed. Wait a minute, Jesus, Jesus is alone with a woman? Wait, wait a minute, that's not just a woman, that's a Samaritan woman. What's going on here? They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. You know, and, and in our church culture today, this would be a very unsatisfactory ending to the service, right? You know, you want to have the, the response time, the, the, the altar call, the prayer huddle, the, the praying the sinner's prayer. I mean, right in the middle of the gospel presentation, Jesus gets interrupted by the disciples and away she goes. She didn't even sign a, a pledge card that, you know, she'd given her life to Jesus. How can we put that in the newsletter next month? And yet this thing is going viral, this kingdom of God. And before she even has it all figured out, she's still at the point of saying, could this be the Christ? She's already sharing her faith. And there's other people that are being drawn in. And a crowd begins to draw around Jesus. We'll see that in a minute. But meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Remember, they'd gone back into town to get some food. He's at the well thirsty. They're going to get some provision. And he says to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Is he speaking in heavenly uh, language or earthly language in that sentence? Heavenly, okay? You, you are smarter than the disciples here. Or you read ahead. It might be cheated. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Just like Nicodemus. How can an old man enter his mother's womb? Just like the woman at the well. You know, how, you don't have anything to draw water with. And so they are also thinking in earthly ways about what Jesus is speaking of in heavenly ways. And he makes it a little bit more clear for them. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are still four months until the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Uh, maybe that's a bit cryptic. Uh, you know, if, if we were a more agricultural society, it wouldn't be that confusing or difficult. If someone told you right now in May, it's harvest season, I hope you would be a little, a little suspicious and be thinking, I'm pretty sure the wheat is not even ready to cut yet. I'm pretty sure the other crops haven't even been planted yet. Pretty sure harvest time comes in the fall. Trying to think, is there anything you harvest in May? And you'd be scratching your heads. Looks like a lot of blossoms on the trees. I don't see any apples out there. 
There's no corn yet. You must be talking about a different region other than here. Are you talking Argentina? What are we talking about today? And Jesus says, I'm telling you, even though the harvest is four months off, it's here today. The fields are white for harvest. There's fruit that needs to be brought in. You didn't plant it. You didn't work the fields. But there's work to do because the harvest needs to be brought in. And you get to experience the same joy that the one who sowed and labored and now reaps. All all are benefiting and, and rejoicing that there's a harvest. There's fruit to be brought in. Get excited. God is the sower. He's the one who has scattered the seed. He's the one who draws people to himself, who seeks and saves the lost. He's the one who goes to people in their place of greatest longing and deepest need. And he offers eternal life and refreshing and cleansing. And now there's a a good work for you to do. It's to bring in that harvest. It's to reap. It's to gather. It is now. It's not four months from now. And there's rejoicing because God has earthly work for you to do that lasts for eternity. You know, we don't just kind of, oh man, I just can't wait until I die and I get to start this eternal life thing that Jesus mentioned. Because, you know, really there's nothing. It's just earthly stuff otherwise. And don't make that mistake. Jesus is saying there's a harvest of souls today and there's eternal work to do right now in this earthly reality. God's kingdom is already here. And it's also not yet. And he has chosen us to be a part of building for his kingdom. So Jesus communicates this to his disciples and then we go back to the story of the Samaritan village. Not just a woman now, but verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Now look at the layers of belief here in, this, in these closing paragraphs of our text for today. So many of the Samaritans believed because of the woman's testimony. What, what testimony? Simply this. He told me all that I ever did. You know, again, she, she's still at the point of saying, could this be the Christ? But she's simply sharing what she knows. I met someone who met me at my place of deepest need and greatest longing, and he knows everything about me. And because of that simple testimony, there are people that are believing, and they're coming to Jesus. But it goes further. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And I love this, I love this sentence. It's beautiful here in verse 42. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. It's gone from the, the question that she asked, could this be the Christ? Now you've got people who are confident. We know for ourselves that this is the Savior of the world. Not just on the basis of your testimony, but we have personally encountered the source of living water, the spring from which life flows, the one who looks into the hearts of men and women and children and teens and knows 
that deep, dark story of your past, what you most need, the longing that you have that only he could fill. And they believe in him because of his word. And finally, after the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And it's just a sequence of this good news going forth. It's not just good news for one Jewish leader named Nicodemus in chapter 3. It's not just good news for the other Jewish followers of Jesus that are being baptized at the end of chapter 3. It even crosses cultural barriers, ethnic barriers, to go to people who society may consider outcast, inferior. It reaches to one woman at a well in Samaria and then ripples out to affect everyone she knows. But beyond that, it continues on. It goes to Galilee. And there's feasting that comes with it. And there's news that is spreading. This gospel is not something that we just keep to ourselves behind locked doors. But it goes out and it goes forth. And God is continuing his work. Today, to make it personal, I'd encourage you to put yourself in the shoes of the Samaritan woman. And also, then after you've done that, put yourself in the shoes of Jesus' disciples. So, so from the perspective of the Samaritan woman, is Jesus your personal Lord and Savior? That's where it begins. You know, if all you're doing is every day going out to that well, getting a drink of water, trying not to think about the big picture, trying not to look too far ahead or, or look too far back because both of those are depress- depressing and anxiety-producing, then today take a, take a real hard look at who you are. Because there is one who will meet you at that place of greatest longing and deepest need and bring living water and hope. He he desires to be your personal Lord and Savior, not just the one who loved the world in general, but you in particular. And if you've gotten a hold of that and, and, and maybe you're still figured out, maybe you're at the place of saying, could this be the Christ? But there's some joy in your heart. Then you can begin the work of bringing that testimony to others. There's a harvest to bring in. You're, you're one of the disciples at that point. Following, maybe you don't have it all figured out yet. If you do, you need some more humility. But hopefully you realize that you, even though you don't have it all figured out and every I dotted and every T crossed and every theological question answered, there's a harvest of souls to bring in and God uses people like you and me in that harvest we go out, we, we celebrate, we rejoice. We're not the ones who planted. We're not the ones who labored, but we get to bring in the harvest. And that's exciting. Let's stand together in his presence. Today, if you are at that place of deep need and longing and pain, I want to pray for you that you taste the living water that Jesus promises. If you have received that, if Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior, I want to pray for you that God will strengthen you with joy to go out into the harvest fields and work for his glory. Sound good? God, we thank you that today you are here in this place. You're the bringer of life. You are the fountain from which streams of living water flow. 
We thank you that you bring cleansing, that you meet us at our darkest place and you bring us to the light, that you take those earthly longings that we have that are so inferior and superficial and you give us a taste of something more. You, you deepen our hunger for you. You refresh in a way that nothing this world offers ever could. And so we thank you, Lord, that you are that giver of life. I pray for anyone in this room who's like that Samaritan woman in the story, someone who hasn't tasted and seen that you are good, that today would be the day that you draw them to yourself, that you make it personal for them. For those in this room who are like your disciples, many of us who, who need a reminder that there is a harvest. Harvest time has come, and there's work to be done. And it's not drudgery, but it's joy. God, we pray that you'd strengthen us for the task. We, we pray that we would use our testimony and point people to you and your word, that they would see for themselves that you are the Savior of the world. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.